0: This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief.
1: Welcome to humans of gaming i'm drew dixon i am the chief content nerd at love thy nerd and host of this podcast uh unfortunately chris qualney couldn't make it with us today um so uh it's just me and my special guest which today is heidi mcdonald hey heidi how are you
0: hey i'm great it's a little cold outside but that's all right we're, we're making it yeah uh,
1: i was i was a little bummed because here in nashville like we don't get that much snow but anytime it's like cold and snowy elsewhere it's cold and rainy here
0: yeah so yeah
1: it's just like kind of wet and gloomy and then i can't ever go like mountain biking which stinks Aww. um so yeah i know i know well there's it's, always uh, the weed
0: you know you can <laughs> find some kind of <laughs> some, yeah like mountain bike on the some Wii like, or something yeah, yeah
1: there's some mountain biking games i've never tried them really but there are a few um, maybe I should do that. So. I think
0: that's probably the, the only mountain biking I'd ever be able to do because <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to tell you a horrible secret. I don't know how to ride a bicycle. Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> you need to come to Nashville and I'll teach you.
0: Okay. That'll be fine. Yeah. We, no. we lived, um, not only am I notoriously a klutz, but we lived at the top of a hill on Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. And so my parents uh, didn't think it was safe <laughs> to put me on a bike. Yeah. <laughs> and they're no, that, probably, makes sense. that was probably wise of them in retrospect, but yeah, yeah. I don't. They um, loved
1: you. They were just looking out yeah, for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But if, uh, if the
0: zombie apocalypse comes and the only means of escape is bicycles, I, I guess I'll be laying down my life for you all. <laughs>
1: well you know i my seven year we were talking about our kids earlier before we started the podcast um i tried probably three or four times to teach my daughter to ride her bike without training wheels you know and uh just she just wasn't having it and i just kind of went fine i mean it's i'm just not i'm not going to try to teach her because she's it's she's not receptive right to yeah to this and it's not going well Uh, and you know, one day she just picked it up and did it herself. So maybe if the zombies were coming after you, you'd like pick up the bike and just, it would just, you'd figure it out.
0: I don't know. That'd be interesting. Possible. Maybe well, it'd be one of those if I actually play a mountain biking game, then I'd be able to do it. Because it's like you hear those you news go. stories about some 12 year old kid who was able to save his grandma's life <laughs> by pulling the car over because he'd played <laughs> Mario Kart or some kind of crazy crap like
1: that. Yeah. There was some, I don't know if it's really true, but there's some story about that with like Grand Theft Auto that some kid knew how to drive a car because of Grand Theft Auto or something. Wow. But I don't know. It's probably not true. But, uh,. <laughs> Heidi, where uh, what what would people know you from? You've worked on several games and done several things in the gaming industry. How, how do you how do you introduce yourself when it comes to your 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 uh, contribution to the world of video games?
0: Well, I worked as a designer and a writer for Shell Games in Pittsburgh for four and a half years. I did nine titles with them. Uh, several of them were transformational or educational games, like we did. One, that was an HIV prevention game. We did a drug prevention game. We did a literacy game. Um, I also worked while I was there um, on this funny little parody Star Trek parody game called Orion Trail. Like, think about Oregon Trail except in space and with a lot of really bad Star Trek jokes. Um so <laughs> <That's great. laughs> uh so I, I think people liked that one. So I'd done a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh they also know me from writing I've written a book called Digital Love, Romance and Sexuality and Games and I've done a lot of lo- lecturing and independent research on that topic about like how and why people romance when they're playing single-player rpgs yeah. and uh, i also wear pirate hats at conferences <laughs> so it's like we they'll see a lady that, yeah. with the huge hat they'll be like oh yeah there she goes um and it it started completely by accident uh that whole thing but now it's now if i don't wear a hat people get mad at me and they're like where's your hat uh and Recently, I was the senior creative director for an organization called iThrive, which uses games to promote positive psychology. Uh, In other words, figuring out best practices to deliberately design for things like empathy and optimism and stuff like that. And I just wrapped up work with them a couple weeks ago, so I'm... Sniffing around, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, but I'm I'm really super proud of the work that I got to do with them. And yeah, uh, that's cool. It'll be it'll yeah, be cool.
1: So, so if you're listening to this, hire Heidi. Could yeah, you thank do you. Some, uh, <laughs> you. do some some narrative stuff for your game, or uh, you know, oh, there's a, it's some writing for your game. Uh, what else would you? Um, well, let's I, do your resume right here. Let's uh, get people. <laughs> let's get you hired. Let's get you hired right now.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I could also. Uh, Um, work on romance or, you know, if you you have a game that's about romance, I can look at it and say, oh, well, here's how this lines up with what I've learned from my research. Um, And I can also... Talk about things like empathy and kindness and stuff like that, but I wouldn't want to run contractually afoul of, of them, you know, of those guys because they're really good yeah. at what they do and they're a bunch of scientists and stuff. But, but I did learn an awful, awful lot from from working here's, there. Here's a little my bit about pitch. emotional engagement. Saying,
1: yeah, here's my pitch to any studio that's like listening to this podcast. For you, uh, is that like scientists can be kind of like I'm sure the scientists that I thrive are great but they can be kind of like stuffy and not so like like intellectual but you're fun to talk to thank so,
0: you yeah so my they job... can
1: hire you to speak into that issue of empathy and and kind of to speak that into that issue into their games without having to talk to someone who's so, like it's hard to talk to <laughs> and kind of stuffy and, well and, and no whatnot.
0: that's kind of what my role was on the team was um, I was the one game person on the entire team of scientists and so the biggest part of my job there was translation (laughs) because we don't always understand the science speak and the the scientists don't always understand game developers Uh, like when we were having an event for game developers and they said well what snacks should we have and I said we should have a lot of bacon and we should have they're like wait what (laughs) 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 and I'm like no trust me bacon bacon it's a thing and uh, james port now shows up and piles his plate completely with bacon and i'm like yes yeah, score <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great well actually i'm curious to talk to you about both those subjects of, of love and romance and games and cool. then also empathy uh i'd be curious like in the studies and things you've done to write uh digital digital love was the name of the game or the name of the book right
0: yeah, Digital Loves, Romance, and Sexuality in Games. It's a collection of essays from people throughout the games industry who are examining one specific piece or part of something. Like we have somebody who wrote an essay about marriage in Stardew Valley, okay. for example. And uh, Interesting. mine, my chapter in my own book, has to do with the bizarro relationship in Western culture about nudity in games. Oh yeah. Because there's, you know, how do you present nudity with with the NPCs and what's appropriate and what's not? But there's this really weird psychological stuff that happens whenever people are watching their own character be naked in a game. You know, there's all this stigma and all this shame around like nudity and I'm not even talking about, you know, uh adult games or hentai that's something completely different i'm just talking about right. regular games that have like there's it dredges up all the stuff for people and um huh. and, yeah. and that's what my chapter talks about but there's a lot of cool chapters in there um we had dr luke dick who's a good friend of mine he is the data guy at zynga he wrote okay. an essay about the ethics of romance and sexuality in ai
1: Oh, interesting, yeah,
0: so there's like so, there's a lot of cool things in the book,
1: yeah, yeah, I'm curious if like is there because I feel like romance in games always feels a little bit awkward at best um, is there a game are there games that you feel like do it really like handle romance in really um like helpful or interesting ways? Well that you would highlight.
0: There are um first of all, there's a division between what the Eastern market considers a romance game and what the Western market considers a romance game. Eastern market, yeah. they've already put their flag in the ground. They're like, We're about dating Sims and we're about hentai. That's what that means to us. But right. when I was asking players, game scholars, developers, I asked everybody.
1: So mostly you've you've dug into Western games that have had romance systems in yeah
0: them. yeah um i it's what's like mass
1: effect yeah and, and like Age what's and...
0: really really exciting is that i asked all of these folks what the phrase romance game mean to you and nobody knows there's no clear consensus on it um and and i think that's exciting because that means we get to decide what it means yeah there and you go. um i you know i I would love to see a triple A studio make the romance, the center content instead of the side yeah. content, you know, it's like do mm-hmm. this game where the romance is the central thing that like spirals out and changes the world. And I think if you had a game like that, you would have so many people buy it and be like, wow, mm. where did that come from?
1: <laughs> um, yeah. It's surprising that we haven't because I mean, you know, obviously, our culture, we, we live in a culture that's obsessed with the idea of romance. It's yeah. weird that it's just kind of something that is tacked on to, not tacked on, I shouldn't say that's not fair. Um, it's an aspect of a lot of games yeah. in the West, but, but it's never seen the driving force.
0: No, I've seen it presented a few different ways. Um, you've got ones that are pretty much just contingent on dialogue trees. You've got ones yeah. that are like in Stardew Valley. It's like if you buy this dude enough cookies, he'll marry you kind of thing. <laughs> um,
1: Which is not always, it's not necessarily untrue. That um, happens.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've never actually <laughs> estimated how many cupcakes it would take to buy me off, but cu- <laughs> cupcakes, man i'm saying
1: yeah they're powerful <laughs> yeah they have they have they have a, uh, they have capital
0: cupcakes are important so. and and then there yeah. are uh <laughs> there are other mechanics that i've seen like in per in the persona series where mm-hmm. it colors the game mechanics your relationship with other people colors the game mechanics in ways that are deeper than okay alistair's your boyfriend so now you get this special buff or you get this bigger sword yeah um right so it can be story based it can be mechanics based it can be some c- combination of story and mechanics mm-hmm. based um i'm seeing dating sims are starting to really take off here in the united states the um the stuff that Pixelberry's doing with choices um mm-hmm. The, and what have they done? They, Pixelberry. They're doing a game called Choices, which is really popular with young people. Where it's okay. it's just kind of a visual novel style thing where you get to make choices. <laughs> you know, right. unbelievable that a game li- named Choices would have choices, but they're they're romance <laughs> games, and uh, they have. Uh, my friend Jennifer Hepler, who actually wrote for Dragon Age, is writing for Choices now. So okay. they're, they're doing some pretty cool stuff over there. Um, but nice. it's, it's I think that's the closest that we're seeing in the West to the Eastern dating sim, is yeah. what Pixelberry's doing. And then you have, you know, your Dragon Age, your Mass Effect, the stuff that uh, BioWare's doing. And when I asked players, what were your favorite romances and games? uh three of the top five were Bioware titles so any conversation about romance and games in the western market has got to include Bioware in it because they're very well recognized for that Mm -hmm. um and I I started researching all of this stuff just based on the fact that uh
1: that that you're into those games
0: I well I played Dragon Age Origins and I ended up playing I was the nerd who played Dragon Age three times completely through the game in order to get my romance with Alistair to turn out the way I wanted it to. (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) Because it's like you get to the end, it's like, what do you mean I can't marry him? That's not fair. You know.
1: That's a that's some serious like commitment to Dragon Age. Um,
0: Yeah, most people know that I'm like a unrepentant dragon age fangirl. that's like my jam right there's dragon age i could yeah. go nuts like it's to the point where now people expect my obligatory alistair slide in in all yeah. my conference talks Is they just know that it's like see i need dragon I need, age I need,
1: yeah i need a dragon age game that's just the relationship stuff because i actually find that to be really interesting and engaging in in there. I think like with Dragon Age Inquisition, I got bogged down. I just didn't like, and it's probably me. I probably just have issues, but I just didn't like the combat. No, that's fair. I I mean,
0: I've heard some other people say that, but I really am somebody who loves the tactics. I love the ability to like hit the space bar and like assign people, you go do this. Now you go do that. Um, Right. That's something that I really liked um but yeah. i play bioware stuff for the story absolutely right um, yeah
1: the thing i loved about that game was also like not only are you this romance stuff but you're like trying to figure out am i really like this messianic figure yeah, <laughs> like, yeah do i really like that was an interesting thing that they they asked players to sort of grapple with am i gonna view myself as a as a messiah or not and uh you know, you could you could role play that any way you wanted to, I guess. But Well, you know, was, you said uh, pretty, uh, pretty fun.
0: A, a, a game, a Dragon Age game with just the romance. They did an April Fool's joke a few years ago where they put up an advertisement on April Fool's Day for a card game that was about breeding nugs. <laughs> and i was like wow. th- i was like you guys that is so not fair this game needs to exist because i would play it." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah that's great and i was like you, so can, you said three- you can name it i nug New
1: there you go no that's perfect they somebody should do that mm-hmm. uh, or at least like ea should give someone the rights to do it yeah that
0: would be good. Well, hey, you know um, I'm not busy right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, they should hire yeah. you. You should, you would you would hit that other part. Although you know um, what though,
0: um, every time I've ever seen a writer's position come up for Dragon Age, it's like people. I, I get like twenty different people email it to me within fifteen minutes yeah. of it going up, and I know that if I did write for Dragon Age, I would absolutely kill it because that's like my jam. But I think that's the one game that I would never want to work on because I need to love it. You know, that is the one it's like whenever I've ever been frustrated with the game industry and thinking about leaving, it's always dragon age that brings me back. And so Mm -hmm. I need to love that game and I don't think I could love it anymore. If I worked on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. I think as we've seen recently in the news that, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's, uh, Yeah, it's uh, working on games a lot of times makes you hate them. That's definitely a truism. Uh, So
0: I've been very lucky in that regard. Um, I I haven't. I mean, there are points like just with any job, you know, people are like, oh, you know, you're a game designer, you just get to play games all day. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But just like with any job, there are things that will frustrate you about it. And the the points of frustration were were not ones that were so awful for me that i was like i hate my life i hate this project i hate these people you know i'm uh i've just felt really fortunate and i've had a lot of fun like even at points when you are frustrated you just kind of take a step back and go god i get to work on video games how damn cool is that
1: yeah that is cool Uh, definitely and uh, so you mentioned. I'm just curious because you mentioned that Dragon, that three of the top five romance games that people talk about are, are Bioware games. What are the mm-hmm. other two?
0: I don't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry. You I don't think, remember. Okay. No, don't.
1: no, I'm just curious.
0: I, Leisure
1: Suit Larry. That's what it
0: is. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I want to say Witcher. I want to say Witcher. Okay. Because yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I want to say Witcher and I don't remember what the other one was, but I know that it wasn't a bioware. So So um
1: so you have worked at, at Shell Games and uh you've done a bunch of different projects there, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, what was that like working with I assumed you got to work some with Jesse Shell? Yeah, yeah.
0: It's so funny, right? Because people will say to me, Oh my god, what's he like to work with? And Basically, yeah. if you've ever seen one of his conference talks, that's exactly who he is. Okay. Like that guy. That's exact. That's exactly who he is. And it's like the first day that I was ever at that company. You know, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm I'm just kind of trying to figure stuff out. And all of a sudden, I see Jesse walk past in a top hat, playing a harmonica and juggling. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What the heck? Like what? Did, um, yeah. And I'm looking over, and I'm like, "What the, what the hell was that even?" And of course, the longer you're there, you realize that that's how he mentally chews through problems. It's like when he is trying to churn something through and fig- figure it out. That's what he does in order to help his process. And so, while the mm-hmm. first day I was like, "What the hell did I just see?" You know, two weeks later, it's like, "Oh yeah, there he goes again." <laughs> and uh, he, he taught me everything I needed to know about failure. I learned from him. I learned so Mm. much from him. I learned um, a lot about game design. I learned a lot about public speaking because he's a showman, you know, he gets up there and it's like, he's funny and he's engaging. And, you know, I took a lot of my conference style from him, you know, Mm. I've learned a lot. And yeah, but when I say that I learned about failure, it it all came down to a certain incident and that was uh, that there's a gong at shell games and if anyone hits the gong that means you're supposed to assemble like everyone who hears the gong is supposed to show up. And uh, yeah.
1: And anybody can just go hit it like, hey. Yeah,
0: but you better come yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's like you better have a reason cuz like seriously the whole company right. will will show up. And on my first day I was like, "Oh, cool gong. What's that for?" And Oh my god, we got an intern who asked. I guess I was the first one who asked rather than just hit it. Because, you know, Uh like the interns will be like, oh, cool, gong, and they'll hit it. And then everyone will come running and be like, (laughs) (laughs) intern. But I, for some reason, knew. uh, And I was like, The gong. uh, What's that for? They're like, Ooh, she asked. You got to watch this one. Well, so one Friday that we all hear the gong and we're not expecting it, and we all assemble. Turns out the purpose of this meeting on a Friday afternoon was Jesse had bought this. Turn of the century penny farthing bicycle, like one of those yeah. with the huge wheel in the in the front, the yeah. little one in the back. And the thing's like six <laughs> right. feet tall, and the purpose of this meeting was to watch him ride the penny farthing bicycle around the office. <laughs> nice, <laughs> and, and like
1: was he able? To? Well, it, like it took him it about six
0: tries to get up there because I mean, this thing is about six feet in the air. And um, yeah. I, I would not. I, you know, he's braver than I am. We were trying right. it. And, you don't even know how to ride a bike. Uh, no, so. I don't. Um, But see, <laughs> bike, Jesse so. is a former circus performer. So he is familiar with riding uh-huh. unicycles. And so it would follow that he'd know how to do this. And so, you know, he was a little wobbly at first, but pretty soon. He's like riding this thing triumphantly. And he's making laps around the office. And people are whooping and holding up their phones and recording the whole thing. Well, at some point, something went horribly wrong wrong and he lost control of the bike it went slam into the wall like this thing would have gotten a couple million views on YouTube <laughs> you know um but oh, it was yeah. kind of like yeah and then oh when we the all the phones just kind of <laughs> lower you know and it, I mean we we're worried we we're like oh crap does he need to go to the hospital or something but yeah. he just kind of stood up looked around brushed himself off and said, that wasn't like riding a unicycle at all. <laughs> and, like, he That's taught crazy. me everything that I needed to know about failure in that moment, right? Because mm-hmm. he took a risk. Yeah. He was fearless. He did it in front of everybody. It's like he made himself vulnerable yeah. in front of everybody. And we wanted him to win. And when he didn't, you know, we were still supportive of him when he didn't, you know, cause we wanted him to win and we supported him. And it's like, you can handle failure in a few different ways. You can, you can like stay on the ground and like, be upset or beat yourself up or you can do what he did which is just brush yourself off and be like well that sucked yeah. here's what I learned and then you go do something else you know <laughs> and uh, yeah. I just really admired him so much in that I mean all the time but yeah. in particularly in that moment because I was like god it was like the biggest most important life lesson about failure that, that I've ever gotten was watching that happen yeah
1: that's interesting because It makes me wonder, uh, and this is kind of a personal question. So, do with it what you will. But um, is there like a since that moment has there been like a formative failure for you that you've that you've really learned from that you might mention?
0: Well, um, when I was doing creative direction at iThrive, there was a certain project that uh, that I was doing creative direction on that didn't didn't live up to the expectation of what. Thought it was gonna be and that was hard yeah. you know because you you take it on yourself mm-hmm. it's like when you're the person who's kind of shepherding all of this and then um all of the right combinations or the wrong combinations as the case may be you know will all go wrong um there's so many moving pieces with the game right um you ha- in order for a game to be successful you have to have all these little pieces working in tandem together in just mm-hmm. the right way. And if one or two of those pieces fall down, then it gunks up everything, you know, and it, it always depends on yeah. what things go wrong and how those things work together. And so it it's really it's. Game making is hard, and I—that was something that I had yeah. no idea of until I got into the games industry. But I beat myself up a lot about that. Um, but mm. it turned out that a couple of the things that went wrong, we could have—you know—we could have thought about earlier and maybe mitigated a little bit better. But there were a couple things that just weren't, couldn't have been foreseen you know and you just have to Mm -hmm. do some honest soul searching and think about um you know what was in my control what wasn't in my control what could i and should i have anticipated what was stuff that i never could have anticipated and just kind of take that knowledge with you into the next project and i mean the truth of it is when you're video games you are 10 times more likely to fail than you are to succeed so i mean you have to be used to failing yeah. and like jason vandenberg who's a creative studio lead at uh, arena net has done a really great series of like talks and articles and stuff about how you have to fail faster and he talks yeah. about failure and how to fail faster
1: yeah I'm interested oh in dude album.
0: his his work is fantastic um all about player behavior. Check him out. It's actually, yeah. actually my hat thing is his fault. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, he calls himself the dark Lord and you see this guy walking around at conferences and he's really intimidating looking, you know, um, he's got all these, yeah. you know, skull rings on his fingers and stuff like that. And, uh-huh. uh, he, you know, we,
1: is he actually intimidating?
0: No. he's he's really the nicest guy ever um but i'm told that he can be intimidating but i've not ever experienced that part of him he's always been very (laughs) nice to me but uh i was at gdc in i think it was 2013 and i was given a talk and uh i was a conference associate that year because it's like you can be a volunteer and they give you a free pass in exchange for being a volunteer and that's how i was able to go to gdc the first couple of years of so the first year there is a guy there who wore a pirate hat but it was a really stupid pirate hat and so the next year i was like i'm gonna outdo that dude's pirate hat so i wore my swashbuckler you know my three musketeers with the feathers coming out of it and everything and because because yeah. you know when you're a conference volunteer it's like wearing hats is just a thing they do so i had this hat on and i bump into jason vandenberg he's like you're you totally need to wear that hat during your conference talk and i'm like what and he goes no i dare you (laughs) well if anyone else had told me to do it i'd be like "Mm, i don't i don't know about that but like dude when the dark lord tells you to do something (laughs) you better well do it you know and so i wore my swashbuckler hat to my conference talk and uh you know, it got picked up in the press. (laughs) And so there were pictures of me in this hat. And so then it became a thing and people are like, you're going to wear a hat. It's like, oh my God. So then the next year and the next year and then I've, I've uh, come up with a different gdc hat every year i've got a scottish milliner who builds my hats personally for my head and uh, it's the <laughs> one thing that i spend money on every year is my conference hat so people are like head, how did funny. you adopt that gimmick i'm like i blame jason vandenberg <laughs> it's the dark lord's fault <laughs>
1: There yeah. you go. Nice. That's funny. Well, we do like to um, get to know our guests a little bit more personally. So we were talking about this earlier but our, our listeners don't know. Where did you grow up and, and what was that like? What
0: was your um, I grew up here in Pittsburgh where I live right now. And my... My time in Pittsburgh has been punctuated by, you know, I lived in L.A. for a couple years just recently, um, but I've mostly just been in Pittsburgh my whole life. And I grew up at a time right when the steel mills were shutting down in, the, you know, in the yeah. '80s, and and that was really something because uh, the the town went through a really big change. It went through this change from being a really dirty steel town. To being this really cool place for technology and education and healthcare, but it took like thirty years for that change to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were in, and your parents, were my what? parents, are from Michigan, and they okay, yeah. came to the University of Pittsburgh to do their graduate degrees, and they just never left. So I was the only. My sister and I are the only branch of our family who was from Pittsburgh. Everybody else was from Michigan or from somewhere else. And my dad was a speech professor at Penn State for many years, and my mom was a teacher. And then when I was eight years old, this was very strange, she announced that she had been called by God into the ministry uh, when I was wow. eight. <laughs> and so suddenly she's
1: and so like into into a, a, a Christian church? Yeah, she
0: went to seminary, uh Pittsburgh Theological Seminary to become a minister. Okay. Um between the age
1: Did she you you made it sound like that was out of the blue. Was she religious prior well, to Well, I mean
0: they oh. had always taken me to church every week when I was a kid. Okay. But you know, yep. when you're a kid, you can't necessarily make sense of religion. It's just like, this is what you do. You go to church on Sunday and it's like you sing sure. these songs and you say these words and whatever, but it may or may not actually. It's not personal Yeah, to it, you. It, it may yeah. or may not mean anything to you. So all of a sudden to hear my mom uh-huh. say I've been called by God, it's like, oh, um, sure. <laughs>
1: it's like, I- <laughs> so you're, you're eight, but even at eight years old, you were kind of like, uh that's weird yeah to me. it,
0: it kind of was and mm-hmm. all i knew was like my mom went from being available to like pretty available to me to not being very available to me because now she's going to school hmm. full time and she's you know she's trying to do oh, all that stuff yeah and um
1: so this calling of god to you is almost taking
0: like, my uh, mom away <laughs> a little bit
1: yeah like you interpreted it as like well god's this person that keeps my mom from hanging out with me. The,
0: um, I really, d- I just thought that. it was the whole thing was very strange. And okay. uh, yeah. my dad was an alcoholic. He was mm. abusive. And I think looking back on it, my mom uh, not only was called by God, but I think she also saw that as her ticket out of a bad situation mm. and to, to provide a means for, taking care of my sister and I, she saw that not just as her life's work and something that was important, but also as a way to escape something that was just not very good. Um, And then my dad in a last ditch effort to try to save things with my mom and have things in common with her, he decided to go to seminary as well.
1: So all of a sudden he's he's
0: called by God. And it's like my mom was serving as an associate pastor in one of the biggest Methodist churches in Pittsburgh while my dad is in seminary mm-hmm. and they assigned him to this little podunk church out in the middle of nowhere and what was very very st-
1: Yeah because uh people don't I think some people don't know this but I guess in the Methodist church right you just get assigned somewhere you don't really have a, That's lot, of, right. a lot That's right. That's absolutely life. right.
0: And uh you know the bishop just you know meets you and talks to you and to gauge on your personality and your skill set, and then decides where you go, and that's just how it is.
1: Yeah, my brother, uh, my brother, and my parents actually both attend a Methodist church, and uh, he really likes the pastor they have right now, and uh, it's like this constant thing he's worried about. You know, are they like, going to move him? Are they gonna, yeah? yeah are they going to move him somewhere else? And then we probably wouldn't like this church so much. And that kind
0: yeah, of yeah. I mean, anyway. it's a, it is a thing so. that happens. And they, yeah. my mom was very fortunate in that they let her stay where she was for, I want to say, 15 years or something. Um, mm. But what was really confusing and interesting at the same time to me was the completely different approaches that my parents had to religion. Because, you know, they're both yeah. ministers in the United Methodist Church.
1: And at different, different churches, churches
0: right? But the, their no. ap- just their approach to it was so completely different. Mm. It's like my dad is one of these hellfire, brimstone, very judgmental types of Christian who wants to use yeah. religion to control and scare people, and mm. I don't align Which with that like very maybe, much.
1: Because sure, and you said earlier, like um, that uh, he he kind of like did this whole religion thing to like. Save his relationship on, with your mom in some ways. I think ways, so. on some
0: level that's true. I think it would be disingenuous to say that he did not feel religion to. Okay, I think that right. is something sure, that sure. was important to him. But I do think that he saw things slipping away with my mom, and I do think that was part of it. But
1: you Yeah, yeah, but you also said he was like previously yeah, yeah. To, to to this to this like decision to go to seminary and all this. So at all, I mean I just wonder like I don't want to speculate too much, but it's interesting that it seems like his preaching and teaching style is also like, you know, uh, bears out those same Kind of, kind of, yeah.
0: It's just, you know, he was very much thinking that, well, you know, I'm your father, so I'm entitled to knowing everything about you. You know, there was no Mm. privacy that I was allowed. It's like he went into my room and read my diary. And I just thought that was so awful. And it's like when I was 19, I got a pap smear, you know, because you do that when you're a young woman. You go and you you get yourself taken care of. And I went and got a pap smear. and My yeah. doctor sent me a letter um, with the results of my pap smear in it. And my dad felt entitled to open it. And read it, and I'm right. like, what mm. the um that no, <laughs> and he's like, yeah. well, it's your health, and I'm your father, damn it, and I'm like, yeah, but that was not okay, man. That's just not, you know. Yeah. It's like there are some mm. parts of my health that really are none of your business, and of course, at that point, I was 19, yeah. so. Uh, mm. But yeah, they I <laughs> looking at my parents' different brands of religion. It is amazing to me that they ever got close enough together to reproduce let alone twice because <laughs> mm-hmm. my mom yeah um for her part she um she's always been very open very welcoming uh, and in her mm. ministry one day she was uh it was after church and there was a guy sitting in the in the congregation just by himself and he's crying his eyes out. And she came over to talk to him and getting to know him, she realized that, you know, this was a gay man who had AIDS. And of course this is during the AIDS Mm. crisis in the eighties. And, uh, he had been completely disowned by his family for being gay and for having AIDS and, you know, getting to know this young man kind of changed my mom's views on a whole lot of things about, homosexuality Mm. and like the corrective responsibility that she feels like the church has, um, you know, telling these people that they're wrong or evil or going to hell or whatever. So she wrote a book uh, um, called more than welcome. And it's a book about how the church has a responsibility to help these folks and not hurt them.
1: And the Mm. Methodists
0: were not very happy with her for writing this book. Um, Yeah. Cause they're,
1: Right now, like when did you write it?
0: About twenty years ago. That's a big. She was okay. she was ahead of her time. Oh, so
1: that was like, yeah, yeah, because that's a a debate going on in the. You
0: know, yeah, in the it really, right really now. is, and you know, she just retired yeah. uh, this year, and she's like, I'm so glad I don't have to, you know, <laughs> have to have right. to do the politics on that one anymore. But uh, mm. she, yeah. Ended up leaving that church and going on something called honorable location, which is you can still maintain your ordination as long as you're doing something honorable and, you know, Christ like, I guess. And so what she did is she served Mm -hmm. at four Unitarian churches um, instead of Methodist churches. And I think those were a lot closer to where she is theologically, which is just, you know, whatever your journey is we support that if you are engaged in a responsible uh-huh. search for truth and meaning in your life. And you're like, and you're trying to be a good person, then, then that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So,
1: so did you like, by growing up then with this, cause I don't never met anyone at this kind of uh, religious experience <laughs> growing up. This is really unique. Like, did you have, I mean, I guess you grew up going to church. So did we, I assume back then you would have thought of yourself, like, as a Christian. Well, when you're a kid, you don't really think is, of
0: yourself as anything. It's like, you just, you know, it's right. time. It's like, this yeah, is it's my time family, for church. This is you do. just go to church. Um, but what's interesting to me is all the other preacher's kids who I've ever met in my life, they never knew what it was like for their parent to not be a minister, right? It's like they, they yeah. were born into a family where, where there was already a minister. But... Uh, for me, it was a lot different because suddenly I'm dropped into this fishbowl that's not of my making. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. you have all of these folks at church who are suddenly taking an interest in everything you're doing and everything you're saying. And I really didn't like that very much. And we had, you know, my dad was not a good person at that time. And so to me, it felt very dishonest to have to show up at church and pretend to be the Norman Rockwell family when we had this horrible stuff going on at home. Mm. And I I really resented yeah. that. And people mm-hmm. – it, it always struck me as there was a level of fake going on at church. It's like they weren't necessarily actually interested in each other. They were just – maybe there, out of some biblical commandment to fellowship with each other. I mean, I'm sure that there were people who it meant something to. That
1: was your perception of like the church as a whole. Yeah, that's
0: how it felt. Not just and your parents my mom and I used to mm-hmm. get into these big arguments because, uh, you know, somebody would come up to me and say, and how are you today? And I'd say, well, you know, I kind of had a bad week. I have a headache today, you know, and my mom would just be like, can't you just say fine they want to hear you say fine just say fine and I'm like Mm -hmm. but mom if they want to know how I am you know why are they (laughs) yeah it's it's like if it's (laughs) like if you don't want to know how I'm really doing then why ask you know it's like and if I'm not fine why should I say that I'm fine and it's just so we had this whole thing about that where she was trying to tell me that that was part of the niceties of going to church. It's like it's just kind of like if mm-hmm. somebody says good morning, you're supposed to say good morning back and if somebody says how are you, you're just supposed to say fine, true or not. And that's just not how I roll. <laughs> if somebody yeah. asks me how are you doing, I'm going to be like, dude, I just read this horrible thing on yeah. the internet and I'm kind of upset today, you know. Uh and mm.
1: Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this, I really appreciate you sharing this because I think there's a lot of Christians who listen to this podcast because we get into these kind of discussions and, um, and I do, I think you've hit on something that's, uh, like there's a, there's a, there's been a lot of ink spilled over this issue, but there's seems like there's an exodus from a lot of churches these days, like churches are not really growing, um, and actually a lot of, a lot of like mainline Protestant churches are not growing. And, um, you know, I think not to say that we've pinpointed it here, but this is one of the reasons like people come and they don't feel like there's this freedom to say, I'm not okay. And, well, you, you know, and, uh, I think that's a really important message for us to, 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 for Christians. Like I, I'm actually, I, I, you probably gathered this by now, but I profess to be sure. a Christian. And so like, yeah, I really want to think like, how can we make church this place that doesn't feel like, uh. Like a show or like a, like a masquerade where we're hiding what's really well, going on. Well, I you know?
0: I do not have a problem with Christian people. I actually admire folks who have something in their lives that gives them hope and gives them meaning. And, you know, there are times yeah. when I wish I had faith, <laughs> you know, mm. um, yeah. because, sure. you know, they're there's some pretty scary stuff going on in the world right now. And it would be comforting to have, yeah. to have that kind of faith. And I can appreciate sure. people for whom that is important. Absolutely. The mm-hmm. the point at which I have an issue with it is when you got people trying to bully or control or scare other people. I don't think yeah. that's cool at all. Right. And, um,
1: it sounds like you got some of that from your, like, Or some of that was coming from your dad, I guess, growing up, right?
0: Definitely. And I mean, I had other relatives Mm. like that, too. Um, But I don't know. It it was strange because growing up in the church, I looked around, uh, you know, at confirmation time, and I looked around at the other people in my confirmation class, and it just felt as though everybody else had something that meant... It's like it meant something to all of these other people, but I... Really, I was like, what kind of defect is wrong with me that I don't feel Mm -hmm. this presence of God or love for Jesus that everybody else around me is saying that they do? It's not something that I felt. And, you know, there were words in some of the things that we were supposed to read. It's like they'll be like, let's all read this litany together. And there would be like a couple lines in that litany that I'd be like, oh, I don't agree with that. And it's like, so do you read the litany Mm -hmm. or do you leave out the stuff that you don't agree with? And it's like, what do you do? And my dad considers it the greatest failure of his life that I rejected the beliefs that I was raised Mm. with. But I don't think it's his failure because it kind of didn't take to begin with. It just didn't resonate. Um, And
1: certainly doesn't help that, you know, I'm sure that he was, a difficult person to sounds like to live with.
0: Well, there's a difference between, um, Christianity resonating and morality resonating. I mean, I like to believe that I know the difference between right and wrong. I like to try to be a good person. I'm teaching my kids to be good people. And I think it's possible to teach others to be good people and to be good people without being religiously affiliated. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe in some kind of something that's bigger than we are. Yeah. Um, I, I call it the universe. Um, I, I think that my beliefs as I've thought about them are somewhere between Buddhism and paganism. If that makes any sense at all. Um, collective consciousness Uh and, um, interdependence. Okay. And powers of the universe. I do think that there is something after death. I don't believe in heaven or hell um, because I think that if there's a God, God would love us too much to send us to a place Mm. like hell. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a transition to another kind of being. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm right or not. I just know that it's important for me to try to be a good person and try to leave the world better than I found Mm. it. And that's what I'm trying to teach my kids how to do too. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned earlier, like this, I like the, sometimes the idea of like hope that's found in Christianity appeals to you. And then you also mentioned like, you mentioned just now this desire to, to be a good person. I'm curious, like where, where that's rooted for you, or do you have a sense of where, where that, where that comes from for you now, since it's not necessarily like the religion of your upbringing, which you've decided isn't isn't for you and it's not, not something. You're- no,
0: I think it has more to do with, uh, people whose life work that have inspired me, you know, mm-hmm. people I want to be like, Yeah. you know, um, like I think about people like, like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King, mm. like, you know, people who have, who have really put some stuff on the line in order to do the right thing. Yeah in times when it was hard, like, you know, Rosa Parks, mm. she was putting her life in danger. Yeah. And she did it because it was the right thing to do. And so just yeah. looking at examples of amazing human beings in the world has just been very inspiring to me. Mm. Like Malala Yousafzai, holy crap, that young woman. Just, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I will get teary talking about her because she's just, she's just amazing. And, the, there are so many people doing such great things in the world. And I think that it's these other people whose life stories and journeys have, have inspired me. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So where, uh, are, do you still, um, still keep, you still, you, say you t- still keep up with your mom. What about what's your relationship with your dad like now?
0: I, uh, I talk to him maybe once a year.
1: Yeah.
0: Is um, my uncle like, died uh, recently. Is he still a pastor? Uh, well now he's retired and he's in Florida. And so now what he'll do is he'll do a volunteer pastor for like people who are in retirement places and Mm -hmm. they need somebody to lead the service. So he'll kind of do that. Um, my uncle, his brother died recently and so I was in touch with him, you know, in the aftermath of that, but we don't talk a whole lot. Um, and that has to do mostly with the fact that, uh, he, very much when he hears something that's wrong with my life, he will want to fix it and he will give me advice Mm. on how I should fix it. And often it is like the most inappropriate advice, (laughs) you know, it's advice that might work if he were in the situation, but it is not advice that would ever work for me. Mm. And, um, So, I've learned to just not tell him anything that's ever wrong (laughs) about my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's okay. Like, hey, Dad, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm jobless right now. (laughs) 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 Like, he doesn't know that. Um, You know, my mom knows it, but my dad doesn't. Because, you know, I've just really not want him to be telling me well what kind of job i need to go get now or right. you know well well your sister's a vice president and she makes this much money oh, thanks Dad. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh man uh i uh i'll just go ahead and apologize in advance if he does listen to this podcast and then you get a bunch of unsolicited advice so
0: <laughs> no you know what um he he can kind of barely email. i don't think that podcasts are
1: you know unlikely something to that happen. he can do yeah. like
0: his technic his technical expertise is probably not at the level of podcast <laughs> my well, mom good. though m- my mom on the other hand man she's like instagramming and ziplining and all kinds of wow stuff. i
1: don't even know what ziplining
0: is really um yeah. it is where you you take uh It's an incline with a cord. Oh, that kind of zipline. I assumed you said Instagram,
1: Instagram, and then ziplining. I thought it was some kind of new social thing.
0: No, (laughs) no, she is. My mom is. She's seventy-four. Yeah, she's seventy-four years old, and she's going ziplining, and you know, trekking through, you know, trekking through jungles in Africa and all kinds of stuff.
1: That's great.
0: She's my mom's a badass. Um, <laughs> sounds like it sounds
1: like a <laughs> she sounds like an interesting person for sure. That's cool. Yeah, she really is. That's cool,
0: she really is. But, but now that she's retired from the clergy, though, it's really interesting to watch her because she doesn't want anyone in her retirement community to know that she's a retired minister yeah. <laughs> because they won't want to be she's like, friend, then. then. Well, they'll all wanna be your friend, but they'll all wanna drag her to church and they'll uh, all want her to pray with them and do and she's like, I spent thirty-five <laughs> years doing that. I just wanna yeah. I just wanna have some fun now. That's and funny. so I'll I'll be calling her up and, and she'll be like drinking mimosas and going kayaking and just, just doing all that that's stuff. Funny. And they don't know like her neighbors don't even know that she's a minister. Yeah. Because scary. she doesn't want that to color uh Yeah their opinion of her and yeah, I, I, is, I I can understand I that. get
1: it I used to be a pastor actually and uh oh yeah and uh it was always kind of like um I always got a little it's and this is some of my own insecurities probably but um there's you always get a little nervous telling someone when they ask like hey what you know you have that con- like you sit down with somebody on the on a plane flight or whatever um and uh you, I'd always get a little nervous because I'm like, oh, great. Now they're going to hear I'm a pastor and think that they can't like talk to me like a normal human being, you know, <laughs> Like, or like expect you to have answers to all these things. Like, I went to seminary and I studied about like theology and stuff. That doesn't mean I am an expert on everything. You know? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I can't help you. But anyway, my wife found this, um, this book of it's just quotes from Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah. About, yeah, I have that. Book. About, okay. Yeah. About parenting. And we're like, um it's so like inspiring, you yeah. Know? Like uh it just makes me want to be a better dad. It's a really great little little book. Yeah,
0: it but- really was. Um so enough- have
1: you seen the uh the new the new documentary no about
0: him? no i have recently? not okay. um i've heard that it is amazing but every one of my friends who's seen it said that they were because this is pittsburgh you know he was from here yeah. he was a fixture right. here and they're filming a, a biopic about him right now where tom hanks is going to be starring right. as mr rogers and so tom hanks has been popping up all over town which is pretty cool but um that is cool Everybody I know who saw that movie said that they were just sobbing. And I don't, you know, Mm. I love Mr. Rogers, but I don't. The church that my dad was serving, there is not a person in the church who is younger than about 70 years old. And so, what I used to do to amuse myself is I would take songs off of the radio and play Mm -hmm. them really, really slow and churchy. <laughs> and nobody ever knew the difference because these are people who would never be listening to b ninety four radio so um, and it's like I would yeah. tell my friends that I would do this, and they didn't believe me, and so you know, my dad was like, "Oh, honey, I think it's so wonderful that all your friends are visiting at church and like the o- <laughs> the only reason they were visiting at church was to hear what I was mm-hmm. doing um was to hear what i was doing and, and they'd be sitting back there laughing and my dad wouldn't know why i was like well that's because i just played something by survivor <laughs> in the middle of church you know um
1: i definitely encourage our listeners out there go hire <laughs> heidi to do some work for your studio i pretty sure some Bioware execs oh this, my so, god uh,
0: they, yeah they're, we'll, they're gonna uh, be we'll like get, we'll make that they're happen. gonna be like oh my god that lady because you know they've all heard of the stuff that I've done about Dragon Age and, and things like that and um sometimes when i've met dragon age people i've fangirled a little bit too much so they're probably gonna be like oh god <laughs> not that lady you know not her again there, well you know there's the famous david gator over squee incident of 2013 where i just uh i met the guy and i was just like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, just and then there was a guy standing uh, there and so this gator walks happened. away and i turned to the guy next to me and i'm like dude did i just messed that up as badly as i think i did and he went oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> he was honest yeah at least. yeah so um if i ever you know i have not bumped into him at any point since but i've decided that i owe him a cup of coffee or something because that was back <laughs> when i was a noob and i didn't know how to act um and yeah. like just last year at GDC, I ended up on a panel with Mike Laidlaw and I was like, trying not to crap myself the whole time. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I just want to talk to you about Dragon Age forever. Yeah. That's funny. He's really, he was,
1: did that one go better at least?
0: Yeah. He was a really nice guy and uh, I, I appreciated it. Yeah. That's cool. That's Fun cool. times.
1: Well, Where can people find you on? Yeah. Where can people find you online? Um,
0: actually, I have a website, but I've down because I need to redo it right now. But it's going to be okay. www.deathbow.com. deathbow. Um, Twitter, okay. you know, just do searches of my name, Heidi McDonald, or Deathbow. It's on Twitter. It's at death underscore bow because Deathbow is kind of like my gamer tag. It's my thing. So
1: cool.
0: And nice. you know, cool. Facebook. I'm I'm on all of the all of the stuff. All <laughs> oh, <on> social <laughs> yeah. medias
1: gotcha cool and if
0: anybody wants uh, if anybody wants to talk to me about dragon age (laughs) i'm always down to do that
1: uh, just set you up on twitter and you'll we'll get you going (laughs) cool 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 Cool. you can follow me on twitter i'm jenetics 82 you can also follow love Thy nerd on all the social medias just search for at love Thy nerd We're at Love Thy Nerd on Instagram and Twitter and then just search for Love Thy Nerd on Facebook. We also have a community called Love Thy Nerd Community on Facebook uh, where you can go and geek out or nerd out over all kinds of geeky and nerdy things. Uh, We have a whole podcast network. So this is just one of three podcasts that we produce. We also have Free Play, which covers all areas of nerddom. And then we have The Pull List, which is a comic book podcast um, so go check those out. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about it on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, just spread the word about this podcast. That's really the primary way we have of of, of, uh, of advertising for this. Um, if you'll go rate and review our podcast, send me a note, Drew at LoveNinErd and uh, I'll see if I can't hook you up with a free game code uh, from from a game that one of our uh, one of our guests has has made. So um, definitely go do that and let me know that you did it um and other than that i think that's about it for us here today uh be sure to go check out LoveTheNerd.com for great uh interviews and features and educational pieces about gaming and nerd culture um and uh yeah go check out uh go, go follow go follow heidi on twitter and check out what she's doing so uh thanks again heidi this was great